0: Ahoy! It's your boy. Today is Sunday, December 24th, and I did not really see this coming, but if you happen to hang on the edge of every word that I say and you wait with bated breath each week, then uh, you'll be receiving this on Christmas Day. So, happy holidays to you, and uh, I guess it's kind of nice when things work out that way. Um, Not too much to get you caught up on, except, uh, oh, I had my wisdom teeth pulled. So, um, yeah, I've literally eaten scrambled eggs, mashed potatoes, I had a little bit of salmon, um, but I'm basically eating a soft food diet for seven days, which, um, I admit actually hasn't been too bad. Um, I guess it goes to show you that I'm pretty adaptable to circumstances. Um, and, uh, what can I say? Uh, I guess when I can get back to eating regular food, that'll be an excuse to pig out on something, uh, especially delicious. So, um, other than that, the only thing that's really on my mind, cause I, 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 I sort of mentioned in passing the movie Barbie, which I happened to see. And I admit I've watched a lot of movies since then. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time talking about those things cause I'm going to read the second part of my honors thesis here and, um, it's going to take a while. So, uh, that's going to take up most of our time. So actually, now that I think about it, uh, this may be kind of a drab and, and, uh, I don't know. Is it doleful? Is that a word? I don't know. It'd be a drab thing to listen to on Christmas Day. But hey, what can I say? Maybe anything to get away from your um, uh, in-laws, perhaps. Um, but the movie that's really on my mind. Last night, I watched completely unexpectedly. I had a list of a couple movies I wanted to to, to watch, and I don't want to. I won't tell you what those are. But apropos of nothing, or maybe unexpectedly, I saw um, an ad for this film, Salt Burn, which. I had, I, I, maybe I had heard of, I don't know why, it was kind of in the back of my mind. But I really didn't know anything about it. And so I started watching it, and I was immediately sucked in. And it was one of these experiences where you're watching a movie, and you just know that you're in the hands of an artist. And after about 15 minutes, I paused the film, because I was like, this is like, this is just like out of this world. Like, I, I just loved it. And uh, I realized that it was made by, I think I'm getting her name right, it's Emerald Fennel or em- em- Emerald Feral or something like that. But she made a film called Promising Young Woman, which I saw, um, I guess, around the time it came out or when around the time that it came out for streaming or whatever. And there was something about this film where, not I mean, uh, Promising Young Woman is a perfect example of this, but it although I haven't really developed my thoughts on Barbie... Um, these are two female filmmakers that are ostensibly commenting on, you know, I don't know, the state of sex and gender and the cultural zeitgeist. And it, I, I, again, my thoughts are not really uh, super defined on this, but I was like, this is a real a tourist filmmaker who has something meaningful to say about this topic, versus, you know, something, you know, the Greta Gerwig Barbie film just seemed to be this kind of meta commentary on itself that tried to wrangle this you know barbie this thematically into this like um i don't know socially relevant pretzel just it just again i thought the whole movie was pretty incoherent but i thought here's a female filmmaker who really has something uh meaningful and timely to say and that's um definitely present in promising young woman which i encourage you to check out. Bo Burnham happens to be in it and gives an incredible performance with a twist that uh, I don't think most people will see coming. And um, yeah, but Saltburn is absolutely incredible. The male lead is actually, um, you'll probably recognize him if you kind of watch, I don't know, maybe the more indie films or whatever. But he was the male lead, uh, the sort of psychotic male lead, not Colin Farrell, but the the sort of uh, villain of Killing of a Sacred Deer the what's his name largos Yanthimos, or whatever his name is um very cool filmmaker as well um but he is just absolutely incredible in this movie and uh if you're in if you're in for a movie that is uh potentially disturbing a little creepy and kind of um uh, gr- maybe grotesque is a word i would put there's some sexually explicit stuff um it's meant to be it's it's meant to make you uncomfortable, but it's absolutely captivating, and it's one of the best movies I've seen in quite a while. So that would be my film recommendation for the week, and maybe when we return to our regularly scheduled programming next week, um, we'll have other sort of movie stuff to talk about because uh, now that I have a lot of time on my hands, that's kind of what I've been absorbed in. Other than this TEFL training that I've been doing, which, you know, they say it's at your own pace, but you have these, like, how do I say it? Uh, is it, like teaching plans. You have these homework assignments that you have to do and they get graded and you can't really move forward until they get returned to you. So I actually feel like that's kind of stifling my progress a little bit, but I'm making progress nonetheless. So maybe we'll talk more about that when we reconnect. But for now, uh, let's get into the second part of my thesis. I'm not going to summarize things except to say that in the first part, we talked about Bauman's first principles of science. We enumerated what those are. And the second half, will deal with uh, whether or not Uh, Those concepts are, you know, sort of can be generalized to this canonical commentary on I Ching called Shi Juan, and uh, yeah, so that's what we will get into in the second part. So I hope you enjoy, sit back, relax, and enjoy the second part of my honors thesis. Confusedly Formed, Shi Juan as a Normative Account of World Genesis According to Bauman's First Principles of Science, Part 2. Shi commentary on the appended statements. Shi as exegesis. Shi commentary on the appended statements, also known as Da Great Commentary, is the canonical commentary that is included in the received version of I Ching, Classic of Changes, an ancient Chinese book of divination and philosophy. While Genesis, Anuma Alish, and Popol Vuh are each foundational texts which have inspired their own commentatorial traditions, Shi Juan is itself an exegesis on the terse and enigmatic text of I Ching. As a commentary, the, intellig- the intelligibility of Shi Juan relies on a cursory level of familiarity with I Ching and the broad strokes of its philosophical features. To that end, I will first survey the salient aspects of Yijing that Shi Zizuan makes frequent reference to and provide an overview of Shi themes and philosophy. A Brief History of Yijing Yijing is a multimodal visual and textual work built upon a sequence of 64 images or gua hexagrams so-called because they are composed of every possible permutation of six, hexa, broken or unbroken lines drawn one on top of each other. Collectively, the hexagrams constitute a system of metonymic images which are said to represent every conceivable situation a person may find themselves in. Appended to each hexagram is a descriptive name and an accretion of commentatorial texts which elucidate their meaning. Traditionally, one consults Ching by manipulating milfoil stalks, and the random outcome of these manipulations directs the inquirer to a specific hexagram. By reading and reflecting on the image and its text, it is believed that the inquirer is better equipped to recognize the relative good or bad fortune of their current circumstances, and will better understand how best to respond to current events and to either bring about or avoid certain outcomes. Although the actual origins of I Ching are uncertain, it is held that the received version of I Ching is a composite text whose oldest layers are rooted in China's earliest recorded history, the Shang dynasty. While I Ching was used primarily as a divinatory text from its conception through most of the Zhou dynasty, its subsequent accretion of exegetical and philosophical commentaries, some of which were later attributed to the Chinese philosopher Kongzi, Confucius, and its elevation to the study of Jing classic during the Western Han Dynasty, led to it being regarded as a quote, repository of profound moral and metaphysical truths. Alongside the relative academic uncertainty about Yijing's actual authorship, the history that I Ching recounts of itself is more fantastical than it is historical. Xi Zizhuan dedicates a portion of its text elaborating how the received version of I Ching represents the philosophical and metaphysical wisdom of Chinese culture heroes throughout the ages. Shi Zichuan relates, When in ancient times, Lord Fuxi ruled the world as sovereign, he looked upward and observed the images in heaven and looked downwards and observed the models that the earth provided. He observed the patterns on birds and beasts and what things were suitable for the land. Nearby, adopting them from his own person and afar, adopting them from other things. He thereupon made the eight trigrams, in order to become thoroughly conversant with the virtues inherent in the numinous and the bright, and to classify the myriad things in terms of their true innate natures. We will return to this passage as it recalls our previous discussion of sovereignty in accounts of world genesis, and the sovereign's role in encountering the existence of things, and separating them according to their genius. For now, This passage establishes that, according to tradition, the building blocks of the hexagrams are eight, three-lined images, the so-called trigrams, also referred to as guà, which were originally drawn in antiquity by the legendary Lord Fuxi to express the fundamental order of the universe. Later tradition holds that the fully historical King Wen, patriarch of the Zhou dynasty, then stacked pairs of trigrams into their known hexagrams, sequenced them into their received order, the so-called King Wen sequence, and added summary statements to each to elucidate their meaning. The hexagrams would go on to serve as the models for the basic tools of civilization utilized by the sages. King Wen's son, the Duke of Zhou, later affixed mantic statements to the six individual lines of of each hexagram, 384 in total. Finally, the various commentaries and appendices of the received texts have traditionally been attributed to Confucius. Although legendary, this account underscores that even by its adepts, I Ching is understood and read as an accretion of texts which can be separated into two main sections. One, the earlier core I Ching comprised of the hexagrams, their appended statements, and individual line statements. And two, the latter appended commentaries collectively referred to as Shi Yi, the Ten Wings, of which Shi Zizuan is one. Scholars have observed significant differences and discrepancies between these two sections. The earlier core is terse and enigmatic, while the latter commentaries are highly philosophical and transfigure what was originally regarded solely as a divinatory manual into a sacred text. The focus of our study, Shi is possibly the most formative in this regard. However, before turning our attention to that text in detail, I will first identify the major themes of Shizuquan and demonstrate something of the philosophical language it wields when commenting on I Ching. Features and Philosophy of Shizuquan Juan was composed in the late Zhou dynasty in the 3rd century BCE, And refined into its received form sometime in the Western Han. While references to I Ching divination predate it, the earliest known references to Shi Juan specifically are in the Shi Ji of Sima Qian and Sima Tan from roughly 100 CE. Although authorship of I Ching's Ten Wings are traditionally attributed to Confucius, both ancient and modern scholars have conceded that the received text of Shi is a composite work representing the voices of more than one author, and at times, competing philosophies. And yet, while some interpreters have putatively assigned isolated sections of Shi to Taoist or Confucian editors, taken together, the received text can generously be assessed as presenting a syncretic, if not entirely consistent, philosophy. This syncretic quality to Shi juans philosophy can in part be attributed to the ambitions of its authors. Shi Tzu-Juan offers more than a mere explication of I Ching's abstruse text. It is an account of the creation of both I Ching and the cosmos itself. Although not a narrative account of creation like Genesis, Shi Tzu-Juan is saturated with the philosophical language and terminology of the late Zhou and early Han, a period of syncretic cosmological thought. This syncretic quality of the language of Xizhuan partly accounts for the attention it earned from latter Song Dynasty Neo-Confucians, who drew heavily from the language of Xizhuan in formulating the syncretic revivalist form of Confucianism that would go on to be the orthodox interpretation of the classics for nearly 1,000 years. In this prevailing interpretation, Xizhuan reads Jing as an infallible system which provides insight into the cosmic processes operating within nature and through the symmetry that exists between heaven, earth, and humankind within ourselves as well. Still, the language wielded by the authors of shi juan assumes a level of fluency with the philosophical parlance of the period in which it was written. While a full explication of the text's philosophy is outside the scope of this essay, it will require that we frequently refer to shi juans own commentatorial history to elucidate its otherwise enigmatic expressions. In the study which follows, we will explore how closely this infallible system conforms to the principles outlined in Bauman's First Principles of Science. Xizhuan and Bauman's First Principles of Science Xizhuan as a Scientific Account of Creation Before locating Bauman's first principles of science in the text of Shi we should first demonstrate if the text qualifies as a scientific account of creation at all. Recall that science here is not understood according to its modern definition as a system of inquiry aimed at arriving at objective facts about the underlying order of nature, but as original science, that which is known through empirical observation, Joseph A. Adler asserts that, although categorized as a commentary, there are actually relatively few passages the Shi Juan which are formally commentatorial, and that even these are latter interpolations. Adler goes as far to say, quote, Shi is not a commentary on I Jing. It is a collection of statements about the I Jing and how it functions, as both an oracle and a book containing the most fundamental natural and moral principles. The Xi Juan explains the Ching's function primarily in terms of linkage, parallelism, or harmony of heaven, earth, and humanity, and how the Ching, by means of its inherent spiritual power, allows humanity to maintain that harmony. In Adler's reading, while the text is peppered with formal commentary, its primary function is to elucidate how I Ching expresses the symmetry between the natural order of heaven and the conventional order of humankind. Moreover, he observes that according to Shi juans own claims, astute readers of the text gain something of the fundamental natural and moral principles which allow humanity to maintain that symmetry. Indeed, Shi juan makes many ambitious claims about the metaphysical and cosmological comprehensiveness of Yi Jing. Robert Smith has summarized Shi juans assertions in this regard as follows: Yi Jing is in effect one a microcosm of the universe, duplicating quite literally the fundamental processes and relationships occurring in nature. 2. These processes and relationships are revealed in the hexagrams, trigrams, and lines of I Ching. 3. The I Ching allows those who use it to partake of a potent, illuminating, activating, and transforming spirituality. And 4. By participating fully and sincerely in this spiritual experience, one can discern the patterns of change in the universe. Thus, one can not only know fate, but also establish fate, that is, devise an effective moral strategy for dealing with unfolding circumstances. Similar to Adler's claims, Smith observes that the authors of Shi interpret interpret Jing as an expression of the underlying order to nature revealed through the overt wisdom of the appended statements and the allegorical imagery of the hexagrams. Shi Juan also asserts that those who recognize and implement I Ching's wisdom are invested with the power to sustain themselves by mitigating the potential entropy of unfolding events. As such, one who utilizes I Ching as outlined in Shi is invested with something of the same transforming spirituality that sustains the universe itself. In our previous readings, we observed that, according to Bauman's first principles of science, scientific accounts of creation enumerate the tasks of ordering the world against an ever-impinging void. Additionally, although scientific accounts of creation are allegorically expressed as a single event, the ever-impinging presence of the void requires that the conventional order is sustained through interminable maintenance and vigilance. According to Adler and Smith's readings. Discerning the pattern of change in an otherwise incoherent cosmos suggests a system of order in nature that is similar to those we've observed in other accounts of creation. Moreover, both interpreters emphasize an inherent dynamism in nature, which the enlightened reader perpetually attunes to, so as to maintain the harmony between heaven and earth. I contend these observations qualify Shitizhuan as a scientific account of creation when creation is properly understood, not as a single event but as the perpetual ordering of the world against an otherwise undifferentiated unity. Having established that, we can begin to recapitulate Bauman's first principles of science and compare them against the text of shi juan Face the Void For Bauman, scientific accounts of Genesis begin with the acknowledgement of the void. To that end, shi juan posits that transcending all observable phenomena— is a supreme unity, or Dao. Of this Dao, Shi Ziduan relates, The reciprocal process of yin and yang is called the Dao. That which allows the Dao to continue to operate is human goodness, and that which allows it to bring things to completion is human nature. The benevolent see it and call it benevolence, and the wise see it and call it wisdom. It functions for the common folk on a daily basis, yet they are unaware of it. This is why the Tao of the nobleman is a rare thing. It is manifested in benevolence and hidden within its functioning. It arouses the myriad things but does not share the anxieties of the sages. As replete virtue and great enterprise, the Tao is indeed perfect. It is because the Tao exists in such rich abundance that we refer to it as great enterprise. It is because the Tao brings renewal day after day that we refer to it here as replete virtue and its capacity to produce and reproduce, we call it change. When it forms images, we call it qian. When it duplicates patterns, we call it kun. The means to know the future through mastery of the numbers is referred to as prognostication, and to keep in step freely with change is referred to as the way one should act. What the yin and yang do not allow us to plumb, we call the numinous. This passage demonstrates how Shi Tzu-Juan wields the philosophical language of the time period without explication. Still, we can generally summarize the thrust of this passage as follows. From the undifferentiated Tao arise two polar forces, yin and yang, whose alternations give rise to the myriad things of the phenomenal world. A latter passage in Shi juan affirms this reading. Quote, Therefore, what is prior to physical form pertains to the Tao, and what is subsequent to physical form pertains to concrete objects, the phenomenal world. End quote. The Tao precedes the manifestation of concrete objects. Richard John Lin, the author of the English translations of Shi Tzu Juan used throughout this essay, interpolates his translation with the commentary of Han Kangbo, who further characterizes Tao as a name for non being. It is that which pervades everything and it is that from which everything derives. The Tao, then, is a conventional name given to an ineffable something that precedes the being or creation of things. Shi Zizuan further posits that, while the Tao is hidden in all things and imbues them with their distinguishing forms and characteristics, the Tao itself is formless. The ineffability and formlessness of the Tao is what earns it Hong Bo's epithet of the numinous. He elaborates, The numinous refers to the expression used to address the myriad things in terms of their subtlety and as something for which it is impossible to formulate questions. I once tried to discuss it this way. Absolutely everything just undergoes transformation in the great void and all of a sudden comes into existence spontaneously. As we do not understand why all this is so, how much less can we understand what the numinous is? And it takes the perfect void to respond perfectly to things. We equate this with the Tao. As it takes the complete lack of conscious thought to view things from the point of the mysterious, we call this the numinous. One who takes the Tao as resource and so achieves union with it derives his power to do so from the numinous, but is himself more dark-like than is the numinous. According to Hong Kong Bo's conception, the Dao is manifest in creation through transformation or change, the alternation of yin and yang. In its undifferentiated state, however, the Dao exists as non-being, a state which, like the Dao itself, can be posited but not fully comprehended. Xi Zizhuan itself argues that although the Dao animates all of creation, its transcendent nature means that its presence goes unacknowledged by most people. Even the sage or nobleman, who variously recognizes the Tao as benevolence, wisdom, and virtue, can only dimly intuit the nature of the supreme Tao. Similarly, Hong Kong Bo offers that the numinousness of the Tao is its non-beingness, ultimately equating the Tao with great and perfect void. This characterization of the Tao as a formless, dark-like, and mysterious state preceding creation recalls the primordial waters in Genesis, anuma Elish and Popol Vuh. In Shih Tzu-Juan, however, this undifferentiated wellspring of creation is figured as the Tao. Fix a Point of Reference Having acknowledged the void, the creation of spatial and temporal order from the undifferentiated unity begins with fixing a point of reference. In doing so, Xi Juan sets out by drawing a distinction between heaven and earth. The opening lines of Xi Juan read, As heaven is high and noble and earth is low and humble, so it is that Tian and Kun are defined. The high and the low being thereby set out, The exalted and the mean have their places accordingly. There are norms for action and repose which are determined by whether hardness or softness is involved. Those with regular tendencies gather according to kind and things divide up according to group. So it is that good fortune and misfortune occur. In heaven, this process creates images and on earth it creates physical forms. This is how change and transformation manifest themselves. Again, while the meaning of the philosophical language in this passage is not always intuitive, it is apparent from the outset that Shi begins by enumerating a litany of binary concepts. Heaven, earth, high, low, noble, humble, qian, kun, exalted, mean, action, repose, hardness, softness, good fortune, misfortune, images, physical forms, and change, transformation. We have already observed that apparent change and transformation are the manifestations of the alternation between two primordial forces, yin and yang, which arise from the undifferentiated unity of Tao. This fundamental binary is the organizing principle that the authors of Xi Tzu Chuan order the world by. Although yin and yang are simultaneously present in all things, because they only obtain equal measure in the undifferentiated Tao, all observable phenomena can be classified as yin or yang based on the predominance of one force over the other. The Shi Juan passage above indexes how this universal dualism is expressed by the first two hexagrams of Jing qian, pure yang, hexagram 1, and kun, pure yin, hexagram 2. The subsequent binaries in this passage can therefore be parsed according to these two categories. Yang is heaven, high, noble, qian, exalted, action, hardness, good fortune, images, and change. Yin is earth, low, humble, kun, mean, repose, softness, misfortune, physical forms, and transformation. Although not a single point, it is this overarching dualism that Richard Wilhelm identifies as Shi juans fixing a point of reference in the creation of order against the undifferentiated void. For Wilhelm, if change and transformation are the means by which the numinous Tao is manifested in the phenomenal world, non-change, like Hong Kongbo's characterization of the Tao as non-being, is the point of reference against which the phenomenal world is recognized. In his commentary to the above passage in Xizhuan, Wilhelm elaborates. Non-change is the background, as it were, against which change is made possible. For in regard to any change, there must be some fixed point to which the change can be referred. Otherwise, there can be no definite order, and everything is dissolved in chaotic movement. This point of reference must be established, and this always requires a choice and a decision. It makes possible a system of coordinates into which everything else can be fitted. Consequently, at the beginning of the world, as at the beginning of thought, there is the decision, the fixing of a point of reference. Theoretically, any point of reference is possible. The ultimate frame of reference for all that changes is the non-changing. While Genesis and other scientific accounts of creation identify a creative event as the fixing of a first point of reference, Wilhelm and Hong Kong Bo observed that Shi identifies a negation of observable phenomena as a first point of reference. This could be endemic to a text which explicates the natural order from the perspective of humankind. Although we will observe that Shi Juan is not without allegory, unlike Genesis, Anuma Elish, and Popol Vuh, which recount creation in a way that is overtly fantastical, Shi deconstructs the phenomenal world to arrive at the underlying order beneath it, beginning with what is empirical and reasoning backwards toward what must precede it. In the same way Hong Kong Bo identifies non-being as antecedent to the differentiation of things, Wilhelm posits non-change as a preceding first point against which apparent change and transformation can be recognized. Moreover, Wilhelm's assertion that fixing this point makes possible a system of coordinates into which everything else can be recognized, affirms Baumann's assertion that fixing a point of reference is fundamental to constructing a conventional spatial and temporal order. Assume the Center In the course of fixing a point of reference, we assume the center. Recall that assume in this context implies both the presumption or convention of centrality in the midst of the void, and also assumption in the sense of taking centrality upon oneself. Wilhelm has already underscored the infinite number of available points to choose from in the midst of an undifferentiated unity. And yet, as with Bauman's hypothetical example of falling through the ice, arbitrary does not mean inconsequential. In the same way someone who has fallen through the ice depends on locating the hole they fell through to survive, Wilhelm asserts that it is critical for readers of Shih juan to identify non-change as the first point of reference if they intend to construct a conventional order that accords with the order of heaven. Although any point of reference is theoretically possible, he argues, quote, Experience teaches that at the dawn of consciousness one stands already enclosed with indefinite Prepotent systems of relationships. The problem then is to choose one's point of reference so it coincides with the point of reference of cosmic events, for only then can the world created by one's decision escape being dashed to pieces against prepotent systems of relationships with which it would otherwise come into conflict. Wilhelm's injunction that a conventional order which does not accord with the prepotent systems inherent in nature is in danger of being dashed to pieces evokes the same threat encountered by Christopher McCanless in the true wilderness of Alaska and the same hazards that await the residents of New York City should they ever stop attending to the ever-impinging deluge threatening their subway system. With respect to the ever-looming threat of the void, Xi Zijuan cautions, to get into danger is a matter of thinking one's position secure. To become ruined is a matter of thinking one's continuance protected. To fall into disorder is a matter of thinking one's order enduring. Therefore the nobleman, when secure does not forget danger. When enjoying continuance does not forget ruin. When maintaining order does not forget disorder. This is the way his person is kept secure and his state remains protected. While the prepotent systems of the Tao are noble to one who is up to the task, there is an inherent dynamism to their changes and transformations which the noble man attunes to and adjusts themselves to accordingly. shi juan counsels that although humankind assumes, takes upon themselves, the center by fixing an arbitrary point of reference in the undifferentiated Tao, they cannot assume, take for granted, that overcoming the void ensures their security, in perpetuity, since continuance depends on responding to the Tao's transformations. Additionally, Shi Juan highlights how humankind's assumption of centrality in the natural order is figuratively expressed in the Hexagrams of I Ching. In the commentary's second section, which deals with the hexagrams and text of I Ching more granularly, Shi Juan reports, As a book, the changes is something which is broad and great complete in every way. There is the Tao of heaven in it, the Tao of man in it, and the Tao of earth in it. It brings these three powers together and then doubles them. This is the reason for there being six lines. What these six lines embody are nothing other than the Tao of the three powers. Shi Zizuan establishes that part of I Ching's repleteness is the way it accurately figures humankind's place in the cosmos relative to heaven and earth. The Song dynasty Neo-Confucian, Zhu Xi, in his own commentary on Yijing, Zhou Yi Ben Yi, the original meaning of the Zhou Changes, explains that, with respect to the hexagrams, We take the upper two lines as heaven, the middle two lines as humanity, and the lower two lines as earth. When consulting the hexagrams and attending to the individual line statements, Shi Zizuan and Zhu Xi's commentary on it conclude that, schematically, the two central lines of each hexagram figuratively represent the abode of humankind, which resides literally and figuratively between the abodes of heaven and earth. This schema is also attested to with respect to the structure of the three-line trigrams and another of Yi Jing's appended commentaries, Shu Guazuan, Explanation of the Trigrams, with the top line of the trigram representing heaven, the middle line representing humankind, and the bottom line representing earth. Xi asserts that this structure is doubled in the hexagrams and reflected in the appended line statements, which comprise yet another of Yijing's ten wings, Xiangjuan, commentary on the images. A survey of all the appended line statements in Yijing does not always bear this claim out, or else requires very liberal interpretation to do so. Still, this arrangement is very clearly expressed in the line statements of Jing's first hexagram, Qian, whose line commentary reads, A submerged dragon does not act. The yang force is below. There appears a dragon in the fields. The operation of virtue spreads widely. He makes earnest efforts throughout the day. Whether going back up or coming back down is a matter of the Tao. Hesitating to leap, it still stays in the depths. When it advances, there will be no blame. When a flying dragon is in the sky, a great man takes charge. A dragon that overreaches should have cause for regret. When something is at the full, it cannot last long. Although I Ching's prognostications are ultimately all concerned with humankind, we can recognize the motivic development of the line commentary's imagery, gradually moving from the abode of earth up to heaven. In the first two lines, the dragon is first submerged within the earth, then appears on its surface in the field. The imagery of the third and fourth lines, the abode of humankind, are focused on human labors and even seem to suggest that humankind, despite their ambitions potentially, is circumscribed from reaching the heights of heaven above them. Finally, the top two lines depict a dragon that is in the sky, the abode of heaven, perhaps too high in the final analysis. In short, shi juan represents humankind's assumption of the center in the process of world genesis as the fixing of an arbitrary point of reference in the undifferentiated void and by the figurative depiction of humankind's central position relative to heaven and earth and the lines of the trigrams and hexagrams. No Time in assuming the center, humankind occupies a position relative to the rest of the phenomenal world and the natural order. It is through this relative positioning that humankind knows time. Again, Baumann's first principles of science privileges the definition that understands time as an occasion, of relative stillness, and a world of flux. Returning to the opening lines of Shi Zuan quoted above, apparent change and transformation are the manifestation of the alternation of yin and yang. However, the predominance of one force over another in the myriad things of the phenomenal world is enumerated by a list of binary characteristics. One item of the list reads, There are norms for action and repose which are determined by whether hardness or softness is involved. The binaries dòng and jing, which Lin elects to translate as action and repose, have been translated elsewhere as movement and rest. Although the difference may appear subtle, Lin's choice has an anthropocentric quality which foregrounds Shi role as a commentatorial text addressed to the reader of I Ching. Action is something one does. Its use here anticipates the participation of a human actor that has not been suggested by the text, who, prompted by the prognostication they encounter in I Ching possibly, will choose how to act in response to their current situation. Movement and rest, however, describe the empirical state of a thing. These terms are not only more consistent with the other universally applicable characteristics enumerated in this passage, they better express the relativity of these two terms. In the same way Hong Kong Bo and Wilhelm assert that being and change are the background against which non-being and non-change are made possible, movement and rest are only established relative to one another. While these are descriptors of human action also, in its opening passage, Shi juan is setting out universal characteristics that adhere in all things which can ultimately be traced back to the alternation of yin and yang. For this reason, Jesse Chapman, in his translation, reaffirms Shi juan's intention to correlate movement and stillness, for our purpose the best translation yet of jing, with yin and yang by re-injecting these terms back into the passage. Along with the fundamental manifestations of each in the phenomenal world, heaven and earth, his translation reads: "The movement of heaven and the stillness of earth are constant, and so the firmness of yang and the suppleness of yin can be clearly determined." Although Chapman's clarity is accomplished by taking some liberties with the original text, his translation alerts us to how movement and rest are figured in the hexagrams of I Ching. In his commentary to this passage, Zhu Xi explains, Quote, Movement is the norm of yang. Stillness is the norm of yin. Firm and yielding are what we call the yin and the yang of the hexagram lines of I Ching. End quote. Zhu Xi's explanation of this passage draws our attention to two terms we have yet to explore in the original passage above, "Gong" and ro. We have seen these terms variously translated above as hardness and softness, firmness and suppleness, or firm and yielding. All are possible provided we understand, per Xi's comment, that they refer to the yang, unbroken, and yin, broken lines, of the hexagrams. This observation anticipates our discussion of allegory and how Yi Jing uses the changing lines of the hexagrams to express the flux of the phenomenal world. With respect to the discussion of time, however, recall Bauman's assertion, the perfect way to tell time is with light, which he suggests is best accomplished through the use of a gnomon. In that example, Bauman reports that the gnomon reckons time as the occasion of an observer in a moment of relative stillness relative to the light of the sun. In the same way Bauman prescribes the gnomon as a tool to occasion stillness relative to the light of celestial bodies, Ji Shi's commentary clarifies Shi Zizuan's prescription of yijing as the means by which humankind can reckon time as an occasion of relative stillness within the apparently random flux of yin and yang. Wilhelm explains how this is accomplished as follows. In the heavens, constant movement and constant change prevail. On earth, fixed and apparent lasting conditions are to be observed. On close scrutiny, this is only delusion. In the philosophy of I Ching, Nothing is regarded as being absolutely at rest. Rest is merely an intermediate state of movement, or Latin movement. However, there are points at which the movement becomes visible. This is symbolized by the fact that the hexagrams are built up of both firm and yielding lines. The firm, the strong, is designated as the principle of movement, the yielding as the principle of rest. The firm is represented by an undivided line, the yielding by a divided line. Wilhelm's explanation elucidates how the prognostications of Yi Jing gain their potency according to Xi Zizuan's conception. From humankind's perspective, judging by the unpredictability of events and the random movements of celestial bodies in heaven, the phenomenal world is a world of flux. However, Yi Jing reckons time through the hexagrams which, like the gnomon, express occasions of relative stillness and the alternations of yin and yang. According to Xi Zizuan, In the same way the spinning ballerina experiences relative stillness by remaining in time with a fixed point, the nobleman also reckons time and brings order to the apparent flux of the phenomenal world by attuning to the primary forces underlying its natural order, yin and yang, which are expressed by the firm and yielding lines of the hexagrams. Observe the Horizon Alongside the construction of temporal order is the construction of spatial order. In the Hebrew account of Genesis, this ordering begins with God establishing a dome in heaven and separating the waters of heaven and earth. It is no accident that Shi also begins by discriminating between heaven and earth. Drawing again from Shi Juan's opening lines, the text reads, As heaven is high and noble and earth is low and humble, so it is that Qian and Kun are defined. Xi Juan sets out by expressing that just as heaven and earth are the fundamental manifestation of the primary forces of yin and yang in the phenomenal world, tian and Kun are the fundamental expressions of those forces in Yijing. As with the separation of the primordial waters in Genesis, this division cleaves an otherwise undifferentiated unity into two realms, the abode of humankind and the abode of heavenly bodies. A latter passage in Shih Tzu-Juan also identifies the establishment of heaven and earth as the prerequisite for the construction of spatial order.: quote, "With heaven and earth having their positions thus fixed, change operates in their midst." End quote. This passage spells out that this bifurcation of the void fixes the boundaries of heaven and earth. Having fixed the boundaries of each, these realms can be populated with the myriad things of the phenomenal world. Encounter the existence of things. Juan spends a significant portion of its text encountering the myriad things of the phenomenal world. This is first expressed in the distinction between two classes of things, Xiang, images, and Xing form. Again, drawing on a section of Xi Juan's opening lines above, the text reads quote, In heaven this process creates images, and on earth it creates physical forms. This is how change and transformation manifest themselves. In Hong Kong Bo's assessment, images here are equivalent to the sun, moon, and the stars, and physical forms here are equivalent to the mountains, the lakes, and the shrubs and trees. Like Genesis, which treats the creation of the lights in the dome of the sky and the earth putting forth vegetation separately, Shih Tzu-Juan distinguishes between the characteristic things of heaven and earth drawing our attention to the myriad things in broad categories first before separating them with greater specificity according to their qualities. Separate one thing from another according to its genius. Having established broad categories, Shi juan asserts that things of similar character are sorted according to their inherent qualities. This is the process indicated above. By which the things of heaven and earth can be identified as either images or form, the text reads: quote, "Things with regular tendencies gather according to kind, and things divide up according to group." End quote. In Xi Zhuang, this is true both of the things of the phenomenal world as well as their figuration in the hexagrams of I Ching. Recall again the passage above in which Lord Fuxi encounters the existence of things and, according to their innate natures authors the trigrams to serve as models for civilization. Quote, "When in ancient times lord Fuxi ruled the world as sovereign, he looked upward and observed the images in heaven and looked downwards and observed the models that the earth provided. He observed the patterns on birds and beasts and what things were suitable for the land nearby." adopting them from his own person, and afar, adopting them from other things, he thereupon made the eight trigrams in order to become thoroughly conversant with the virtues inherent in the numinous and the bright, and to classify the myriad things in terms of their true, innate natures. Just as Bauman concludes that the being of a thing comes into existence when we know their essential character, Lord Fuxi functions like the sovereign creators of Genesis, Anuma Elish, and Popol vu in classifying the myriad things of the phenomenal world in terms of their true innate natures. Reify the genius of things with logos An enduring distinction between the type of cosmogony outlined in Xizhuan and other accounts of creation is that while the culture heroes identified in Xizhuan are certainly sages and invested with something of the same spiritual power, emanates from the Tao, they do not, like God, Marduk, and Plumed Serpent, exist prior to creation. The culture heroes of Shi do not call forth creation, but enumerate and explicate it. Still, while they are not responsible for the creation of the cosmos at large, Shi credits Lord Fu Xi and others with the creation of the conventional order of civilization, which is itself modeled on the same natural order as heaven. They reify the genius or inherent qualities of things by recognizing the patterns of nature in them. Shi itemizes a long list of things which are modeled by the sages after the heavenly pattern expressed in the trigrams and hexagrams of Ching. Lord Fuxi tied cords together and made various kinds of snare nets for catching animals and fish. He probably got the idea for this from the hexagram Li. After Lord Fuxi perished, Lord Shengnang applied himself to things. He hewed wood and made plowshares and bent wood and made a blow handle. The benefit of plowing and hoeing he taught to the world. He probably got the idea for this from the hexagram Yi. He had midday become market time, had the people of the world gather, had the goods of the world brought together, had these exchanged, had them then retire to their homes, and enabled each one to get what he should. He probably got the idea for this from the hexagram Shihe. After Lord Shanong perished, the Lord Yellow Emperor Lord Yao and Lord Shun applied themselves to things. They allowed things to undergo the free flow of change, and so spared the common folk from weariness and sloth. With their numinous powers they transformed things and had the common folk adapt to them. The Yellow Emperor, Yao and Shun, let their robes hang loosely down, yet the world was well governed. They probably got the idea for this from the hexagram Qian and Kun. They hollowed out some tree trunks to make board and whittled down others to make paddles. The benefit of boats and paddles was such that one could cross over to where it had been impossible to go. This allowed faraway places to be reached so benefited the entire world. They probably got the idea for this from the hexagram Juan. They domesticated the ox and harnessed the horse to conveyances. This allowed heavy loads to be pulled and faraway places to be reached and so benefited the entire world. They probably got the idea for this from the hexagram Sui. They had gates doubled and how watchmen's clappers struck and so made provision against robbers. They probably got the idea for this from the hexagram yu. They cut tree trunks to make bows and whittled others to make arrows. The benefits of bow and arrows were such that they dominated the world. They probably got the idea for this from the hexagram quay. In remote antiquity, caverns were dwellings, and the open country was a place to stay. The sages of later ages had these exchanged for proper houses, putting a ridgepole at the top and rafters below in order to protect against the wind and rain. They probably got the idea for this from the hexagram Da Zhuang. In antiquity, for burying the dead, people wrapped them thickly with firewood and buried them out in the wilds, where they neither made grave mounds nor planted trees. For the period of mourning, there were no definite amount of time. The sages of latter ages had this exchange for inner and outer coffins. They probably got the idea for this from the hexagram Daguo. In remote antiquity, people knotted cords to keep things in order. The sages of latter ages had these exchanged for written tallies, and by means of these, all the various officials were kept in order, and the myriad folk were supervised. They probably got the idea for this from the hexagram quai. This itemization correlates a number of hexagrams with the foundational tools of civilization and emphasizes that the sages were able to draw on the images of the hexagrams for their inspiration through their numinous powers, the same spiritual force which is inherent in the hexagrams also. Additionally, while Genesis formulates the reification of things with the pattern God said X, there was X, Shih roughly schematizes a similar process according to the formula Sage did X. Its benefits were Y, which they probably took from Z hexagram. Although the sages do not call forth the created world per se, this process represents the sovereignty of the sages and their ability to recognize the pattern of heavenly order in the hexagrams and author the tools of civilization after them. This conception seems to emphasize action over words compared to other scientific accounts of creation. And yet, Shi Tzu Juan asserts the efficacy of the sovereign's words also. Quote The noble man might stay in his chambers, but if the words he speaks are about goodness, even those from more than a thousand li away will respond with approval to him, and how much the more will those who are nearby do so? If he stays in his chambers and his words are not about goodness, then those from more than a thousand li away will go against him, and how much the more will those who are nearby? Words go forth from one's person and are bestowed on the people. Actions start in what is near and are seen far away. Words and actions are the door hinge and crossbow trigger of the noble man. Words and actions are the means by which the noble man moves heaven and earth. So how could one ever fail to pay careful heed to them? The capacity of the sages of Shih Tzu-Juan to establish order through their words and actions is comparable to the creator-sovereigns of Genesis, Anuma Elish and Popovu. The order they reify in Sichuan is both the conventional order of the human realm, the institutional and technological order of civilization, and the heavenly order that is figured in the hexagrams of I Ching. Establish the four directions, the four seasons, and thereby a firmament. Sinking the four points of the compass with the four seasons, and thereby constructing a firmament, is figuratively expressed in Shizu juan which provides a summary of the cosmological model of the phenomenal world and alludes to resources outside of the text which would have been known to readers of that time period. The text recounts, Therefore, in change, there is the great ultimate. This is what generates the two modes. The two basic modes generate the four basic images, and the four basic images generate the eight trigrams. The eight trigrams determine good fortune and misfortune, and good fortune and misfortune generate the great enterprise. Therefore, of things that serve as models for images, none are greater than heaven and earth. Of things involving the free flow of change, none is greater than the four seasons. Of images that are suspended above and emit brightness, none are greater than the sun and the moon. Therefore, heaven produced numinous things, and the sages regarded these as ruling principles. Heaven and earth changed and transformed, and the sages regarded these as models. Heaven hung images in the sky and revealed good fortune and bad, and the sages regarded these as meaningful signs. The yellow river brought forth a diagram, and the low river brought forth writing, and the sages regarded these things also as ruling principles. In the changes, there are the four basic images— It is by means of these that it makes its revelations. The passage begins by tracing a progression from void to fundamental forces, beginning with Taiji, great ultimate, another term for the Tao as the undifferentiated unity that precedes the creation of the phenomenal world, which gives rise to the two basic modes, or yin and yang, the primary forces that are inherent in all things. Newly established here is how these two forces give rise to the four basic images, which then give rise to the already encountered trigrams, the eight building blocks of Yijing's 64 hexagrams. We have observed that yin and yang are figured as the broken and unbroken lines of the hexagrams. The trigrams are every possible permutation of these lines in sets of three. The four basic images are therefore understood as the interstitial arrangement of these lines in pairs and have been correlated to the four points of the compass and the four seasons. Shi contextualizes this otherwise esoteric enumeration of philosophical and cosmological terms by referencing the Yellow River diagram and the Luo River chart, two representations of the cosmological order which would have been known to the readers of Shih around the time of its authorship. Tradition held that the Yellow River map appeared on the back of a dragon that emerged from the Yellow River. It depicts the complex correlation of many aspects of cosmology and numerology. It pairs odd numbers with the Yang forces and even numbers with the Yin force. We also see these numbers correlated to the points of the compass and to the eight trigrams. Each point of the compass is also synced with the four seasons. Finally, we are introduced to the so called five agents or five phases earth, metal, water, wood, and fire, which are believed to be generated by the alternations of yin and yang and proceed upon each other in a predetermined sequence. In the Yellow River map, these five agents are also correlated to each of the trigrams, points of the compass, and to the four seasons. While we have already encountered the assertion of the phenomenal world representing the manifestation of the alternation of yin and yang, this chart expresses how that conception was scaffolded by positing other fundamental elements that arise from them. In the same way all observable phenomena were categorized as characteristically yin or yang, according to their observable qualities, which signaled the predominance of one force over another, so too were things categorized according to the five agents, which represented further gradations on the same continuum with water, wood, and earth being associated with yang, and fire and metal being associated with yin. As in Xizhuan, the Yellow River map is often referenced in tandem with the Luo River writing, a magic square which depicts the five agents in conjunction with strings of even and odd numbers, themselves visually correlated with yin and yang in the form of white and black circles, in which any row, vertical, horizontal, or diagonal, of three sets of numbers adds up to 15. Robert Smith notes that while these two documents are referenced in the Zhou and Han periods, there are currently no known examples of them in the form depicted here prior to the 10th century. Consequently, while it cannot be known if this is the exact sequence of correlations Shi tzu has in mind when it evokes these documents, what can be reasonably inferred is that Cicicuan justifies its conception of spatial and temporal order by referencing these traditional documents, which did link the four directions with the four seasons in some fashion. We observed earlier, through the text of Enuma Elish, how this sinking of the four points with the four seasons renders Bauman's figurative tent of the created world, which represents the construction of spatial and temporal order. In that text, the netting of Tiamat by the creator-sovereign Marduk depicts the dome of the sky being draped over the tentpole-like colliers that emanate from the compass points and thereby establishes a firmament. Similarly, shi establishes spatial and temporal order by correlating the four compass points with the four directions and constructs a firmament, the abode of celestial bodies, from them. In the passage above, Shi Juan indicates twice that the images hung, or suspended, in heaven are regarded as signs by the sages, who observing the procession and relative positions in time, come to know the underlying order of nature. Shi Juan concludes this passage by emphasizing that this natural order is fundamentally expressed in the construction of yijing itself, which is only capable of making its revelations by virtue of the fact that its order accords with heaven. Observe the symmetry between heaven and earth born of light. We have already observed that Shih Tzu-Juan is different from other accounts of creation, in that the creator sovereigns of Genesis, Anuma Elish, and Popovu Vu exist outside of the establishment of conventional order. Shih Tzu-Juan, on the other hand, begins with the conventional order as it exists and reasons back from what is empirical to what must have preceded it. Still, While Shi does not have a prototypical creator sovereign per se, it details a list of sage kings who established the conventional order of the political world in symmetry with the operations of heaven. We have observed that Shi traces a lineage of sovereigns including Lord Fuxi, Lord Xiongnong, Lord Yellow Emperor, Lord Yao, and Lord Shun, who invent the tools of civilization by modeling them after the heavenly order expressed in the hexagrams of Yijing. Therefore, the political order they create sustains because its order accords with the spiritual power of heaven. More importantly, however, while Shi expresses the empirical symmetry between the order of heaven and earth, the ultimate expression of the symmetry between heaven and earth is represented by the existence of Ching itself, which is believed to contain the entire cosmos within its pages. The text explains... Jing is a paradigm of heaven and earth, and so it shows how one can fill in and pull together the Tao of heaven and earth. Looking up, we use it to observe the configuration of heaven, and looking down, we use it to examine the patterns of earth. Thus we understand the reasons underlying what is hidden and what is clear. We trace things back to their origins, and then turn back to their ends. Thus we understand the axiom of life and death. As a sage resembles heaven and earth, he does not go against them. He perfectly emanates the transformation of heaven and earth, and so does not transgress them. He follows every twist and turn of the myriad things, and so deals with them without omission. He has a thorough grasp of the Tao of day and night, and so is knowing. Thus the numinous is not restricted to place, and yijing is not restricted in form. This passage explicitly states that the symmetry between the configuration of heaven and the patterns of earth are expressed in I Ching. Moreover, it lends greater detail to Adler's earlier observation that Juan extols I Ching as an expression of the parallelism between heaven and earth, and that those who approach the text seriously are invested, like the earlier sage kings, with the power to maintain that harmony. In that sense, while Genesis, Anuma Elish, and Popol Vu may provide illustrative examples of creator sovereigns which rulers of the communities who venerate those texts may or may not model themselves after, Shi Zizuan makes the explicit claim that its exegesis of Yijing provides the blueprint for would-be sages and sovereigns of the conventional political order who hope to emulate the cultural heroes illustrated in its history. Therefore, while the final act of creation in Genesis is God's establishing a symmetry between the political orders of heaven and earth by creating humankind in his own image, there is a sense in which the final act of creation by the worldly sovereigns illustrated in Juan is the authorship of Jing, effectively providing future sages with the instruction manual for modeling themselves in the political world after the natural order of heaven. Express knowledge of that order through allegory Bauman asserts that despite the fantastical language or setting of scientific accounts of creation, The complex imagery wielded in these stories always points back to something empirical. As we've observed, the primary function of Shi is the elucidation of the relatively terse and abstruse text of I Ching, which the authors of Shi Juan read as an allegorical expression of the natural order. This is made explicit in the text, which reads, The sages had the means to perceive the mysteries of the world, and drawing comparisons to them with analogous things made images out of those things that seemed appropriate. This is why these are called images. Despite the esoteric appearance of the images or hexagram, Shean assures us that they are analogous to the things of the phenomenal world. While this is true of the hexagrams, Sheduan also concedes that the line statements appended to the hexagrams can pose a formidable challenge to interpreters, but that they can be understood with proper explication. quote. These line phrases speak to the most mysterious things in the world, and yet one may not feel aversion towards them. They speak to the things in the world that are the most fraught with activity, and yet one may not feel confused about them, End quote. As we observed in the first part of this essay, allegory does not explicate, it simply mirrors. Also, the meaning of allegorical tropes are not universal, but specific to the culture and the time period that authors them. Therefore, Shi Juan understanding that accurate interpretation of I Ching's allegory requires explanation, offers a detailed account of the line statements to a selection of I Ching hexagrams to demonstrate how this system of allegorical expressions functions throughout the text. Our earliest example of the spiritual power of the sovereign's words comes from Shi Juan's elucidation of the line statements of hexagram 61, Zhang Fu, inner trust, In context, the full quote reads, A calling crane is in the shadows. Its young answers it. I have a fine goblet. I will share it with you. The master said, The noble man might stay in his chambers, but if the words he speaks are about goodness, even those from more than a thousand li away will respond with approval to him, and how much the more will those who are nearby do so? If he stays in his chambers and his words are not about goodness, then those from more than a thousand away will go against him, and how much the more will those who are nearby do so? Words go forth from one's person and are bestowed on the people. Actions start in what is near and are seen far away. Words and actions are the door hinge and crossbow trigger of the nobleman. It is the opening of this door or the release of this trigger that controls the differences between honor and disgrace. Words and actions are the means by which the nobleman moves heaven and earth. So how could one ever fail to pay careful heed to them? Here we see how the relatively clear explanation of the words and actions of the sages actually exists in conjunction with the comparatively esoteric imagery of the line statement of hexagram 61, which correlates the image of a calling crane and its young with the gift of a fine goblet. This passage demonstrates that the authors of Xizhuan understood the temporally and culturally specific meaning of allegory, and that without their commentary, the meaning of this line statement would have been challenging, even to interpreters living at the same time period as the authors of Juan. In another example, Xizhuan explains, First Yin of Da Guo, Major Superiority, Hexagram 28, says, Use white rushes for a mat, and one will be without blame. The master said, even if one were to place things on the ground, it would indeed be permissible. So if one were to provide matting for it with rushes, how could there possibly be any blame attached to that? This is the extreme of caution. As things, rushes are insignificant, but their use can be very significant. If one makes caution a technique of this order and subsequently sets out to deal with things, such a one will never experience loss. This explanation not only elucidates the otherwise obscure reference to the white rushes, it also demonstrates how one encountering this line statement in the course of prognosticating with Jing would apply the line statement in their assessment of their current situation and consequently would exercise caution in whatever course of action they take in response. Finally, returning to one of the line statements outlined above from hexagram 1, qian, Xi Zizhuan explains, A dragon that overreaches should have cause for regret. The master said, One might be noble yet lack the position, might be lofty yet lack the subjects, and might have worthy men in subordinate position who yet will not assist him. If such a one acts with all this being so, he will have cause for regret. Earlier we observed how the Xiangzhan commentary explains this line statement as, When something is at the full, it cannot last long. And yet, Shi Ziduan reads the prognostication as suggesting someone in a noble position who lacks the proper support needed to carry out the work they desire. What both of these readings hinge on, however, is the word hui, regret, with its obviously negative and non-allegorical connotations. While they diverge in specifics, These differing interpretations confirm that the authors of Shih Tzuan and other commentaries have long recognized the hexagrams and the text of Yijing as an allegorical expression of the natural order of the phenomenal world by the sages who authored them. Summary In many ways, Shih Tzuan is unique compared to the other accounts of scientific creation we've looked at so far. While Genesis, Anuma Elish, and Popol Vuh are foundational texts which have inspired their own exegetical and commentatorial traditions, Shi is itself an exegesis of I Ching, which it regards, and in many ways refigured, as a sacred text. Moreover, while other accounts of creation figure creation occurring at the hand of creator sovereigns which exist outside of and precede the creation they author, Shi Juan begins with the observable phenomena of the created world and reasons back to the conditions and forces which must have given rise to it, ultimately regarding the authorship of I Ching by the former sages as the fullest expression of the underlying order of heaven. Still, despite these differences, we have observed how Shi Juan in conjunction with Yijing and with the aid of Shi Tzu-Juan's own commentatorial tradition, conforms to the same first principles of science as other scientific accounts of creation. In Acknowledgement of the Void, Shi Tzu-Juan posits an undifferentiated unity, or Tao, which precedes creation. In Fixing a Point of Reference, Shi Tzu-Juan asserts that the Tao gives rise to the primary forces of yin and yang, whose alternations manifest the apparent change and transformation of the phenomenal world. Wilhelm and Hong Kong bo have both observed that this initial differentiation of the unity into being from non-being and the establishment of change against the background of non-change exemplify the fixing of a point of reference in the process of creation. In fixing a point of reference, Shi Ziduan demonstrates how humankind assumes centrality and that this centrality is also figuratively depicted in the arrangement of the lines in the trigrams and hexagrams of Jing. In assuming the center, Xi also knows time as an occasion of stillness relative to the light of celestial bodies. Xi asserts that, in the same way the gnomon reckons time by occasioning moments of stillness between an observer and the light of the sun, Yi Jing allows the Inquisitor to reckon time as occasions of stillness relative to the cosmic forces of yin and yang, whose alternations are knowable and undergird the apparent randomness of unfolding events. Shi observes the horizon in fixing the boundaries of heaven and earth and encounters the existence of things by distinguishing between the images, celestial bodies, which are suspended in heaven, and the physical forms of the things of the earth. While these are first identified in broad categories, Shi separates things according to their genius initially through the actions of Lord Fuxi, who begins the work of differentiating things according to their innate natures. The genius of the myriad things is reified through Logos by the sage kings who are invested with the spiritual power to order the world through their words and actions. By referencing the cosmological order depicted in the Yellow River map and Luo River writing, Shi Juan establishes a firmament by sinking the four directions with the four seasons. Finally, Shi Juan identifies the authorship of Yijing, a microcosm unto itself, as the ultimate expression of the symmetry between heaven and earth, and recognizes allegory as the ultimate expression of original science, which Shi juan spends a significant portion of its text explicating. Conclusion While I have demonstrated that Shi juan conforms to Bauman's first principles of science, I anticipate criticism from scholars who might balk at Bauman's claim that this theory generalizes to all scientific accounts of creation for two reasons— First, I expect that few modern scholars would accept Baumann's differentiation between original and modern science. In my experience, it is more common for modern scholars to posit a progression of scientific inquiry beginning at the bad end with early accounts of creation and advancing through history until we arrive at the foundations of modern science Newtonian physics, Einstein's theory of relativity, Darwinian evolution, quantum mechanics, string theory, etc. However, if we accept that scientific accounts of creation like those we've observed—Genesis, Anuma Alish, Popol Vuh, and Shih juan are scientific in the original sense Bauman prioritizes, then we must appreciate that the science they relate is a culturally specific expression of the empirical phenomena of the natural world. Because we lack the allegorical literacy of the authors of these accounts, we do not recognize their precise, objective, and empirical language and misconstrue it as personification, metaphor, or symbolism which is subjective, abstract, and open to interpretation. Rather than a method of inquiry that arrives at objective facts about the natural world, Bauman's first principles of science elucidate how different communities separated by time and space have ordered the world in the face of the void. While their specifics are a matter of religion, which is conventional and culturally specific, The science that underlies them is universal. As Bauman puts it, The science necessary to create a world is timeless. It never changes, not for anyone, anywhere, ever. Peoples face the void, fix a point of reference, assume the center, know time and space, observe the horizon, separate out one thing from another by its genius, and so on again and again and again. We know the science of genesis is timeless because we know the conventional order is not. We are confident in the veracity of Wiseman's account of the inevitable decay of our constructed environment in the absence of humankind because the created world is impermanent. Recall again Bauman's characterization of the void as ever-looming and ever-impinging. Although expressed allegorically, Marduk's netting of Tiamon is as empirically real and necessary for maintaining the conventional order as the 752 hydraulic pumps which prevent New York City from reverting back into the primordial waters, literally, of the void. Bauman puts this point poignantly when he says, Worlds are degenerate. They deteriorate and decline. The created world is like a car, perfect in the showroom, but the moment you drive it off the lot it begins to depreciate. So, the created world is perfect in the moment of Genesis, but no sooner does it start to turn, then it begins to break down. The created world must therefore be maintained. Created order must constantly be shored up lest the ever-looming presence of the void reduce it to nothing. The world is like a garment, perfect off the rack, but after you wear it well, you have to patch it and mend it lest it fall to pieces. So, at the moment of Genesis, the stars in the heavenly matrix precisely indicate the times and places ascribed to them, but over time lose their way. At their inception, calendars mark the order to the sky quite accurately, but immediately thereafter must intermittently be tinkered with lest temporal order go astray. The world is like a house. You have to keep the roof up, or you'll be living in the great outdoors. An allegorical reference of my own to underscore this point is the Greek story of Atlas. In Greek mythology, after a failed attempt to overthrow the gods of Olympus, Atlas is punished by being forced to hold the globe of the earth on his shoulders for eternity. He is later approached by the hero Hercules, who asks for the titan's help in accomplishing one of his twelve labors. Atlas, knowing that he is doomed to carry the globe until someone elects to take it from him, sees an opportunity to alleviate his suffering. While Hercules agrees to hold the world for Atlas while he accomplishes this favor, he tricks Atlas into shouldering the world again by asking him to hold it briefly while he adjusts his garments. As soon as he does, Hercules makes his escape, leaving Atlas, to this day presumably, bearing the world resentfully. The ancient Greeks knew that sustaining the created world is an interminable task, and expressed this knowledge through the allegorical image of Atlas. I contend that there are parallels in the fates of Atlas and Christopher McCandless as depicted in the 2007 film Into the Wild. Both recognize themselves as subjects in a world authored by the genius or sovereignty of someone else. However, in seeking to create an alternative world of their own, they learned something about the harsh reality of the void and the science required to overcome it. Upon encountering true wilderness, McCandless learned, like Atlas, that anyone who willfully takes up the task of shouldering the world bears that responsibility forever. Second, I anticipate that even if scholars accept Bauman's differentiation between original and modern science, many will disavow the claim that his theory generalizes to all accounts of creation due to an overapplication of cultural relativism and cultural specificity. In my experience, Modern academics shudder at the prospect of a white Western academic presuming to know what non-white ancient peoples believed about the world. A white scholar deigning to offer a definitive interpretation of the cosmological expression of a non-Western culture is commonly construed as an act of colonialism. While I am sympathetic to this criticism, I am personally skeptical of its broad application. Moreover, Bauman himself concedes that there are intrinsic biases and limitations to his theory that qualify its general applicability without invalidating it entirely. At the outset of his course, Bauman addresses this directly. As it is, our course has a certain bias to it. It privileges Occidental tradition, the heaven of Western civilization over the Oriental, the heaven of Eastern civilization. Bias also exists in this course due to time constraints, limits to my knowledge, my weaknesses and failings, and so on. Although Bauman acknowledges the perceived limitations of his own perspective, I also assert that Bauman is participating in an intellectual tradition that needs to be located outside the shifting strictures of modern academia's moralism. This does not mean that Bauman's theory is immune to criticism, but that his work continues a type of intellectual discourse that is exemplified in the Tao Te Ching passage that opens this paper. As we observed, the language in that passage foregrounds the dichotomy between the narrators presuming to know something about the state of nature before creation while also emphasizing the limits of their understanding with respect to the same subject. To my mind, Bauman approximates the ambitions of the narrator of that passage in attempting to posit something about the nature of the underlying science and accounts of world creation, while also acknowledging the inherent limitations of language, which make what they are attempting to convey so difficult to express. And yet there is something of Bauman's theory which also situates him alongside the authors of Shih juan as well. While the authors of Genesis, Anuma Elish, and Popol Vuh narrate the acts of creation itself, Bauman, like the authors of Shi and the narrator of Dao De Jing postulates from within the already created world and reasons backwards to the order they conclude must precede it based on their empirical observations the authors of Shi use Yi Jing as the lens for their cosmological account the narrator of Dao De Jing probes their own intuition to articulate what seems empirically true though difficult to express about the nature of the void likewise Bauman uses the available corpus of accounts of creation to posit the principles that appear to undergird them all. Rather than softening the sincerity of his claims, I interpret Bauman's acknowledgment of the limits of his knowledge and his own weaknesses and failings as a gesture of intellectual honesty within the framework of a hypothesis that recognizes, like the narrator of Tao Jing, both the ambitiousness of its own claims and the inherent limits of language to express it. Indeed the narrator of Tao Te Ching underscores that there is a way in which the confused formation of the void informs the way it is confusedly expressed. Similarly, and again without being immune to criticism, any enduring ambivalence about the veracity of Bauman's theory might be attributable to the fact that it explicates the creation of conventional order from the same undifferentiated and confusedly formed unity as that which is illustrated in Tao Te Ching while the narrator of that passage gives it the makeshift name of the great. Bauman styles it as the void, and the makeshift means that sovereigns across accounts of world creation have used to establish a conventional order against its ever-impinging presence are enumerated in Bauman's first principles of science. And there you have it. That's my honor's thesis. Again, I feel like my throat is completely cached. I couldn't read more if I wanted to, and given the length that this has gone, I doubt very highly that you'll want to hear anymore. So, if you sat through both parts of this, I hope you enjoyed it. I know it's not the, I don't know, it's, it's potentially a little bit dry, and I admit, there's a lot of verbiage in there that I think is a little bit challenging. I bet on the written page it's actually a little easier to comprehend, frankly, but nonetheless, it's recorded here for posterity. Um... And uh, I'm sure this is a subject that, uh, even though this is the best enumeration or or sort of expression of my thinking on this topic to date, I'm sure this is a subject I'll return to over and over and over again, and probably something that will come up over and over again in our conversations, for better or worse. So um, rather than keep you longer, I'll just say this, Um, I think we may be connecting one more time before the new year, Um, even if we don't, it's, it's not that big of a deal, I'll just wish you for now... A happy holidays and stay safe. And I hope uh, that this time and the season is restorative. And uh, I'll look forward to reconnecting with everyone soon. So thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now.